and we are grieving uh, the death of our sister Kathy. She will be interred on Friday, so be praying for the family. They also lost um, Ray and Kathy's son-in-law um, due to cancer as well. So please be praying for that family at, at this time. Um, we are in this series in First Peter, which we began a couple weeks ago, and we're moving a little bit slowly through the first chapter, and there's some intentionality there. A lot of the themes for the book uh, we discover in the beginning, and just wanted to take it a little bit slow. We'll pick up some steam, and Jacob will be preaching uh, the next two weeks, uh, leading us through most of the rest of chapter one. Uh, but this uh, morning, we're going to look at verses six through nine. We've already drilled down a little bit on the salvation that God provides and the reason for our hope. And the question is, is joy possible for us today, even when things are hard and trials are fierce? And so we're looking at verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1 of the book of 1 Peter. You'll find that those verses on your, in your bulletin on page 6 or in the Pew Bibles, 1014, or however you want to follow along as I read God's word this morning. In this you rejoice, Peter writes, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you that you minister to us as whole people who experience all sorts of of difficulties in this world. Father, you are honest with us and you minister to us our hurts and our wounds and you lead us. And Father, ultimately our trust is in you. We pray that you would use your word this morning to confirm and convict. Confirm who you are to us and convict us of our need for you. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our refuge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will know the name Timothy Keller, who's a minister in our denomination. Uh, very influential. He pastored for many years in New York City and Manhattan. And he wrote over 30 books and uh, developed quite a ministry of in variety of ways, and he's been influential on me. I try not to quote him too much, um, try not to quote any one person uh, too much, uh, but he's definitely had a big impact on me, and he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in June of 2020, and he died of May of, of this year. Uh, back in March of 2021, he had an opportunity to write an article in The Atlantic, and the title was, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. 
And in that article, the subtitle was, I spent a lifetime counseling others before my diagnosis. Will I be able to take my own advice? Of course, that's a question every pastor should ask themselves about the advice that they give. But towards the end of that article, he writes, I spent a lifetime counseling. Um, excuse me, that was the, the, uh, what I just read. He writes, uh, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, that's his wife, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things, from sun on, on the water and flowers in the vase, to our own embraces and conversation, bring more joy than ever. This has taken us by surprise. This change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more on my heart slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. And of course, you hear in that it took a terminal diagnosis for he and his wife to work their way to that. And if you're anything like me, then you would like your joys and your sorrows to be firmly separated. Those are not things that we naturally put together in our minds. We want the good things right over here. And we want the hard trials and afflictions and adversities to stay far, far away. We'd like to have our joy hermetically sealed off from anything that might take away from them. We want them to be untouched by grief, pain, or difficulty. And this is nothing like what the Christian life is described like in the Bible. Joy and sorrow are held together. Joy often comes in the midst of our sorrows. How could that possibly be true? Well, joy is possible, and this is my theme. Joy is possible when we are focused on Christ rather than our trials. When we are focused there, it's not to say that our trials don't exist, that they're not hard, they're not difficult, but our focus is ever more on Christ. I titled this sermon, You May or May Not Care. It's one of my favorite hymn lines. It's not my favorite hymn, but one of my favorite hymn lines. From Jesus, What a Friend from Sinners, which we'll sing next week. Even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. That is Jesus. And I want to talk about joy's perspective, joy's position, and joy's perseverance this morning. First of all, joy's perspective. Look how Peter begins. In this you rejoice. Now, he's just said a bunch of things. And this is all one long sentence that's interconnected. We've been breaking it up. And our English translations give us punctuation that wasn't there when Peter wrote it. It's all interconnected, though. And so he says, in this you rejoice. Well, what do we rejoice in? Well, we certainly rejoice in our salvation being brought to new life, being born again to a living hope, as we hear in verse 3, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have this hope, we have this new life, we're given this inheritance that 
is described as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that it's guarded by God. All of that is worth rejoicing in. That's many reasons for us to rejoice, certainly. And so Peter can say, in this, you rejoice. Yes. So the first perspective of Christian joy is to hold in view all of the things that the Lord has done on our behalf to redeem our past, walking with us right now through the Holy Spirit and leading us into a glorious future. But it would be pastoral malpractice if Peter did not also acknowledge the challenges that his audience faces in this moment. Remember in verse 2, he called them elect exiles. It would also be out of accord completely with Scripture if Peter just kind of went on and ignored the trials and difficulties that these people were experiencing or fearing or uncertain of. So things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our sin gets in the way. The sin of this world gets in the way. We experience the fallenness of this world. But it's also not how they will be. And sometimes it's a false picture of the Christian life that everything should always be okay. That you shouldn't experience the ups and downs. You shouldn't have hard times. That if you just had enough faith, then those things would go away. Well, that's, I, it's not been my experience. It doesn't seem to work that way. It, in, in fact, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So here's the second perspective of joy. The first one is it holds what God has done close to us. But the second one is that joy sits alongside of our suffering and our trials. You see, grief is a reality precisely because we are not yet to our true home. Trials are a present reality, but it is not our eternal reality. And oh, how I have to keep that in front of me because it does not always feel like that. Sometimes I get focused on the present so much that I forget what God has promised, what God has done, that God is with me. The believer is to have a different perspective, certainly. Even seeing that our trials are yet for a little while. Look at what, or listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. This light, momentary affliction, Paul says and Peter says, if necessary, for a little while. You've been grieved. The perspective of true joy in Christ is not to ignore the reality of those trials, but to see them in light of eternity. And I think it's probably something like parenthood. So if you are a parent, you will understand what I mean by this. But there may be other similar experiences. 
when your children are young, infants and toddlers, those days feel interminable. Sometimes. They feel like they may never end. And yet, and I can say this as a parent of a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old, that you blink and it's gone. In the moment, it does not feel like a small thing, and it's not. I don't want to diminish that difficulty of being a parent of young children. But it is also true that it does go by quickly. I think there's a little bit of this that Peter's trying to get at. That in the moment, it may not feel like it's short. In fact, some of our trials will last a lifetime. But in comparison to eternity, those trials will always be momentary. Some will last longer than others, certainly. But in Christ, we see with a different perspective and we can have joy even in the midst. And so that brings me to joy's position And I I don't know about y'all, who likes to take tests? I know some of you might. All right, a few of you, you weirdos, right? I'm not a good test taker, all right? I I get anxious, I get nervous when it's time to take a test. And my very first test at the University of Georgia was for college algebra. And I had, my professor was a non-native English speaker, So I don't understand the language of math, and I didn't understand the language that he was speaking. And then the first test was on a computer, which I know he's like, okay, fine. Well, let me tell you, that was a little bit strange and new at the time. And I got that test grade, and I got a 47. And I thought, I am done for. I am, I am, I, I, I should just drop out now. Right? I am not going to pass this class. I'm not going to make it through. Well, let me tell you, I worked very hard, and I got a C. And let me tell you, that C to me was as good as getting an A+. Plus, plus, plus. Right? And I was exceedingly overjoyed at getting a C. Now, some of you say, well, Adam, that's not very good. Yeah, well... Take all that's true of me and all that experience. And so the position of joy was to come alongside the test. I don't like tests. I don't like being examined. But it's to see beyond that, right? To see that there's something that is greater than just that one exam, that one test, that one trial. Joy's position is right alongside. It's helping us to see greater purpose. Look at verse 7. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Testing reveals, what did that math test show? It showed I was in big trouble. Right, no, what, are, what are our tests? They show where we are. They reveal who we are. And they help us to know where we need to go. They show us what's within and underneath the surface of our life. The trials that we face as a Christian, if you are a a follower of Christ, they show where your trust truly is, where your faith resides. What do you really believe about God? And what needs to be stripped away and removed? What needs to be purified? 
often impurities exist. This is the imagery that, that Peter's using of gold that would be refined in fire. It, it melts, but it doesn't kindle. It doesn't turn to ash when it's put through fire. But what does turn to ash, what is removed, are the impurities that are mixed in with the gold when it's mined. And the gold has to be put through that process. And, and Peter's saying, this is a precious thing. It's a precious metal, but your faith is more precious. In the ancient world, gold was rare. It was expensive. It was used in uh, the various worship of false gods. It was used in, by the emperors. It was used in the temple of the Lord. Peter says in comparison to the riches of this world which perish, faith in Christ will prevail. But that doesn't mean that that those trials or those tests don't at the same time purify us. They remove what needs to be removed, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our desire for power or reputation, our people pleasing or whatever it is. That we battle with and maybe all of those things. There's a promise. That we need to hear. The Lord is with us in that suffering, in that trial, in that testing. Joy is present, pointing us to the greater reality of the Lord working in our lives. And joy is reminding us that neither our faith nor our trials are pointless. They're not worthless. They have a purpose. And we can say with one of Shakespeare's characters, sweet are the uses of adversity. That is especially true when those adversities are in the hands of the Lord. When he is using them to make us and mold us and shape us into who he wants us to be. Is that fun? I wouldn't say so. Is it comfortable? I don't think so either. John Calvin says that Peter's point or purpose was to show that God not, would not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. But we can rejoice because the Lord has reasons. We may not understand them in the moment. We may not see them right now. We may not like them. But he has his reasons and joy as a fruit of the spirit is present to point us to Christ's purpose and his presence when we are in the midst of these trials. Peter may have had Isaiah 43 in mind, the beginning of Isaiah 43 we hear. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes. The Lord is with us and joy reminds us that God is with us but I can assure you that we can feel quite alone in our circumstances when we are going through a difficult time we can feel like we are the only ones that know what it's like to feel that 
churches can have questions amidst the fire and the flood. Certainly who Peter wrote to felt that. As the Lord says, no, you may not always see or feel it, but I am with you. And this week I had opportunity to speak with my counselor. And I was expressing some things that I had been frustrated by, discouraged by, angered by. And towards the end of that conversation, Dan just, he looked at me and he said, Adam, God wasn't absent in that moment. And I didn't know how much I needed to hear that until I heard him say it. And so if you're here this morning and you need to hear it as well, brother and sister, God is not absent in this moment. Joy doesn't mean that I wasn't still grieved. But it meant that I was beginning to see with new eyes and a renewed heart. There was like this burden lifted off of me. It lightened my load. And what joy there is when I remember that the Lord is with me and that he brings about his purposes in his life and my faith will be proven because it is a gift I receive, not a work that I summon. And that leads me finally to Joy's perseverance. And you may recall, if you're of a certain age, there was a certain ad campaign. This goes way back for an adult beverage. And the tagline was, it doesn't get any better than this. And so one of the, the scenes is a bunch of men, they've, they're out on a river fly fishing, and they're, they are having a, a, just a great time. And they're sitting down around a cabin at a table or something, and they crack open that adult beverage, and the guy gives that big sigh, and he says, it doesn't get any better than this. And I think about how fleeting those moments are. There, if you like to fly fish, that would be a wonderful getaway. I don't like to fish, so I don't know that, that I, I feel like it could get a little bit better for me, right? But maybe for you, that would be the perfect scene. But even those perfect scenes are fleeting in this world, aren't they? How quickly they can be derailed by illness or injury or the game warden showing up. Is this really as good as life gets if you think that this all that there is is this world then by all means go after that get as much of it as you can get your fishing in get your drinks in as much as possible but it, it might sound hellish to others this is called a destination mentality paul tripp writes this in his devotional new morning mercies he says living with the destination mentality means that you load all of your hopes and dreams you search for a definition of the good life in your inner sense of well-being into this present moment. It means that no matter what your theology says about eternity, you live as if this is all there is. And because you are living as if all this is all there is, you try to turn this present moment in this fallen world into the paradise it will never be. See, our faith is reminding us and our joy is reminding us that there is something far better. Yes, we can enjoy those moments. Don't hear me wrong. But we know that it does get better than this. We are waiting for something far more than we are capable of experiencing right now. But that doesn't mean joy doesn't exist either. See, joy is something that can characterize our lives 
as we recognize the hope of eternity. In fact, we should be some of the most joyful people, although too often we are characterized as joyless. Look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, this is a helpful counter to the way that the world operates. It says everything has to be in this moment where we say, well, no, it will never measure up. But we can enjoy what God has given to us in his gifts, knowing that it's a foretaste of what is to come. It's a reminder that joy is not simply an emotion. An Anglican, Anglican priest said just the other day, the opposite of joy isn't sadness, it's irreverence. And I'm still thinking about that, but I think that's, there's something profound there. It's not sadness, it's irreverence. And I think by that he means that we don't see God in the midst of things. And if you don't, then you will put everything into this world. But for the follower of Christ, there's an inexpressible joy that we are to have. It's something much deeper than our outward emotions. Peter says that there is something so profound in you and that will happen to you. Joy then becomes an expression not of our experiences, but of our faith in Jesus. Both now and what is to come, what we look forward to. What's far beyond what we can feel or even express in a given moment. This is how both joy and sorrow can come along side by side in our lives. How we can suffer, but still rejoice. Some of the people that have rejoiced the best and rejoiced the most are those who were dying and knew that their life was in Christ. I've had the opportunity to see that close up and to be encouraged and edified and exhorted to live in the same way. We may struggle day by day, but still there are greater joys ahead and we have a foretaste of joy divine. So joy perseveres as we walk through the ups and downs and the trials that come upon us. And when we follow Christ, we follow where he goes. And before he ascended to heaven, he went to the cross, bearing the shame of the cross, Hebrews says, for the sake of the joy that was set before him. And so we see our, the ultimate ground of our joy is found in him and what he's done on our behalf, that he would come for us to live, that he'd come for us to die, that he comes and he lives now, ever interceding for us. And one day, our faith will become sight. We don't see him now, but we love him. We don't see him now, but we will one day. And you don't have to wait until that moment to live with joy. I'll conclude with this, and this is the end of Timothy Keller's article. He says, I can sincerely say, without any sentiment, uh, sorry, sentimentality or exaggeration, that I've never been happier in my life, that I've never had more days filled with comfort, but it is equally true that I've never had so many days of grief. But I have come to be grateful for those sideswipes. He's talking about the grief because they remind me to reorient myself to the convictions of my head and the processes of my heart when I take time to remember how to deal with my fears and savor my joys. 
the consolations are stronger and sweeter than ever. And at his memorial service, which he planned, he shared this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere, Mere Christianity. He will make the feeblest and filthy of, filthy of us un, un, in, into, excuse me, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. And I know that sometimes it can feel as if grief has the last word. The grief of our various trials, the grief of our loss, the grief of our persecution that some of our brothers and sisters face in Christ, especially while we await for the Lord to return. Grief seemingly has the last word, but it doesn't. Joy does. For we will rejoice forever in our gracious God and King. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. It is true. Thank you for your precious promises and reminding us that Christ is the one to whom we must look. Help us to look there when we are experiencing difficulties, whether they be physical maladies or emotional challenges or, Lord, whatever it is that we're experiencing. Lord, we pray that you would help us to fix our hearts on Christ more and more as you burn away the impurities of sin and our own uh, self-interest and trust. Lord, we know that one day we will only see you and all of those things will be wiped away. Until that day, help us with joy, rejoice now and look to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jacob's going to come and lead our uh, communion part of our service now.